This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It's Friday, July 14th, 2017. The Z-Man and I are on our little summer hiatus here, but uh, we've got some great Flashback Friday shows for you, Pick That. And this week, we're going way back in the archives to 12-3 of 2010, episode 188 with Dr. Joe Panessa. Joe is the Housing and Indoor Environment and Health Specialist at Rutgers Cooperative Extension. He's currently retired. But uh, at the time, he was still with the Rutgers Cooperative Extension. Great show. A lot of talk about radon and other indoor air quality issues. So without any further ado, here's our show with Dr. Panessa. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Joseph T. Panessa, Ph.D., Dr. Panessa, recently retired from Rutgers Cooperative Extension after serving 25 years as the Housing, Indoor Environment, and Health Specialist. In that position, he worked on curriculum development and outreach education, serving both lay and professional audiences. His areas of specialization included the indoor environment and its impact on health, management of building moisture problems, and building science construction technology. Dr. Panessa has consulted for the Department of Housing and Urban Development and the Center for Disease Control on housing environmental health issues, and he currently continues to teach a course in building science moisture management principles for the New Jersey Building Code officials and architects. Dr. Panessa, do we have you on the line? Yes, we do. Thank you for that neat introduction. That's kind of a first for me. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. That's a new wave uh, addition. John, uh, Cliff picks those out special for the guests. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what your position was at the Rutgers Cooperative Extension? Well, I originally joined there in Cooperative Extension as a housing and energy specialist. And as some of your listeners might know, uh, that Cooperative Extension is an entity in... Uh, in state land-grant universities around the country, with, which has a mission of doing university outreach to the uh, general population of the state. And uh, as you said in the introduction, my, uh, my interests uh, kind of evolved over the years, and uh, uh, when I left, I was focused heavily on indoor environmental quality and health issues and uh, uh, building science issues. Uh, but I, when I started the position, it was originally mainly dealing with uh, energy conservation. Now, these cooperative extensions nationwide, I know we've had a, at least one or maybe two other guests that were um, somehow involved with a cooperative extension. How common would it be for one of these extensions to have a housing, indoor environment, and health program? 
Well, uh, it actually has become fairly common, and there are uh, specialists in a number of states around the country, and I just uh, <laughs> roughed out a list of them prior to the show, and we have really great people in uh, some of the states where we have really great people are New York, Washington State, Nebraska, Alaska, Louisiana, Montana, Alabama, Georgia, North Dakota, Illinois, and Missouri, hmm. uh, just to name a few. So uh, those specialists are based at the university, and they support uh, county agents uh, around the state and almost every county in the country uh, who uh, will respond to indoor environmental questions. Uh, so there are a lot of people, and you know, maybe a third or or half of the states have a uh, real significant expertise on indoor environmental issues uh, in the extension system. So those range from uh, architecture uh, and engineering to uh, energy issues and indoor environmental issues. Would, I'm just curious, would... Um Let's say we had someone who had a problem with their home. They couldn't maybe afford to hire a consultant. Um, do, do the cooperative extensions provide that type of service, maybe assisting a, a homeowner with a problem? Well, it varies from state to state, and at the, at the very least, you ought to, uh, such a person ought to be able to get information and very frequently access to publications. Uh, and... The, on a national level, we are in the process of uh, populating a big segment uh, in Wikipedia on housing issues, and so far we've completed a section on uh, flood damage and restoration, and we've just launched another section on uh, uh, energy conservation issues in the home. Um, and I can send you information on how to, uh, how to link up with that. But basically, if you if you call a county agent, there's a good chance that they can link you up with some expertise to deal with the problem. Great, and that's on Wikipedia, you said. Well, the those publications that have been launched are on Wikipedia. I I don't think that you can easily find them by going into Wikipedia. You have to go in through a cooperative extension link. Uh, okay. Well, maybe so, you can help us with that later. Yeah. Okay, great. Cliff? Yeah, uh, Doctor, were you um, interested in indoor environmental quality issues, or were you directed to focus upon these? Well, I, you know, as I had mentioned to you uh, uh, when we spoke yesterday, my formal training is in, is in health sciences and physiology, and uh, uh, so I think that, that there was always a underlying interest in uh, health-related issues that relate to housing. But uh, uh, one of the good things about academics is that you are free to kind of uh, uh, direct your program according to uh, your interests combined with needs that you ascertain from the general public. And... Uh, over the years, uh, those environmental needs have come to the fore. Uh, I started working on mold and moisture issues uh, from the very outset of the job, and then in the late 80s got involved with radon issues, and then subsequently picked up lead poisoning issues. And uh, uh, in the last 
five or so years, I've worked a lot with asthma, and in between, just gotten involved in indoor environment generally with a lot of the other key components of, of the indoor environment. So, so you started out, were you teaching physiology? I, I missed that. Were you teaching that yeah, somewhere? I, yeah, I had taught physiology in medical school for 12 years and then <clears throat> made a, a career change, uh, largely because the field that I had chosen, physiology, was undergoing some transformations in, in a direction that uh, uh, simply didn't excite me that much. <laughs> and I had written out kind of a blue sky description of what radically different thing I might like to do. And I saw the position announcement for the extension job, and uh, that came very close to my ideal job description. So I've been very happy in that uh, over the last 25 years. Now, I, I noticed you were part of an editorial review process for a revision. It was, I, I believe, the 2008 revision of the CDC publication, Health, Healthy Housing Reference Manual. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about this document and, and what your thoughts are on the value of the document? Well, yeah, this is a really great initi initiative uh, to develop a, uh, a housing reference manual, which would be targeted mainly at, uh, at health officials, but also at other building professionals. And the intent, in a very generic sense, was to uh, talk about housing technology in the context of health. And uh, so CDC and HUD got together, and I must say this is a, a, a great and perhaps infrequent examples of two federal agencies playing nicely together. <laughs> and they produced this really, really good manual, and I, it's available online. Simply Google the title, uh, Healthy Housing Reference Manual. And... Uh, you can download it, although you have to do that chapter by chapter, and they have a wide range of chapters on basic principles of healthy housing, indoor air pollution, housing structure, and then sections on plumbing and electricity and HVAC. So it's a really, really good integrative uh, resource. And at the risk of being a little long-winded, there is a companion manual called the Healthy Housing Inspection Manual. And this is more of a, of a workbook that... Uh, uh, provides fairly detailed inspection protocols to evaluate housing in terms of health and safety issues. So those are two really, really good uh, resources. I'm glad you mentioned that. I wasn't aware of that one, and I will um, put a link on our website to both. I already put a link up to the publication um, that we mentioned the first one healthy housing reference manual it's in our uh, references button and then you go to links um, but i will get the other one up there as well cliff yes uh doctor we've talked i guess on our show a lot about what asthma is and some of the key triggers we've not spent much time on patient behaviors uh can you go into some detail on that yeah well i i think as with many many other things uh one's perceptions about something really, really govern what, you know, how one reacts and how one deals with it. And uh, over the years, I've, I've gone to a number of seminars and spoken with a bunch of clinicians about, you know, about doing asthma outreach and asthma counseling. And uh, we found a number of things that uh, uh, get in the way of 
proper management of asthma. And the key thing about asthma is that unlike many other ailments and conditions, uh, asthma management involves uh, knowledge and active participation by the patient. And so this, in some ways, is like diabetes. You have to know what's going on. You have to take an active role in the management of the disease. And this is one of a couple of essential things that have to fall into place to get control of asthma. The overarching concept here is that, according to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, NHLBI, asthma is a disease that can be managed and nearly every asthma patient should be able to lead a normal life. And unfortunately, there's a disconnect, and this doesn't always happen. Well, we'll go into a little more detail on that. First, a brief Pittsburgh note for those of you that may, uh, you know, question that people with asthma can lead a normal life and do just about anything. We had a running back on the Pittsburgh Steelers who had asthma, a gentleman by the name of Jerome Bettis, who was either in the hall or going to the Hall of Fame, I can't remember which, and uh, so it, it is quite obviously something that can be managed, and we appreciate you bringing that up. I want to talk a little bit more about it. Um, first, I guess, my, my first question would be, you know, we have a lot of people who do indoor environmental, I guess, inspections and assessments, and I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are with respect to how important having someone do an assessment of the home environment and or the school environment is in helping with management of asthma issues? Well, that can be very valuable, but, but by the same token, with some education, people might, you know, should be able to do that for themselves. And maybe we could backtrack a little bit and identify, there have been probably several hundred triggers that have identified been identified for causing asthma attacks. And let me just make a distinction here. Nobody knows exactly why people get asthma, but we have a very good idea of what the triggers for asthma attacks are. And the probably the most important asthma trigger is the is the fecal pellet from the dust mite. So those those are the real bad guys with the provision that in homes with large roach infestations, that is the other major player accounting for a large number of asthma attacks. So those those are the two really big uh, triggers, and I think it's safe to assume that probably every bed is likely to have a dust mite uh, infestation, except maybe in some very dry parts of the, of the country. Isn't the pillow and, worse than the bed? Well, you know, I'm not sure about that because one of the asthma docs that I worked with felt that the pillows were not that important, and it was really the mattress and the uh, and the bedding. And the the deal is that the two critical things that mites need to grow, and these are these are microscopic little critters related to spiders, so they're not insects; they're arachnids. Uh, and I train people to do asthma education, I, I caution them about this because you can almost bet that if you call the thing an insect and there are kids in the audience, 
some eight to ten year old kid is going to jump and say, "No, no, it's an arachnid. It's not an insect." <laughs> I, I've seen it happen, and believe me, you don't want to be one up by a pre-adolescent. Anyway, the, Are you the two critical things. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> The two critical environmental things they need are moisture, which they can absorb through their skin, and they eat almost exclusively skin flakes. And we shed enough skin flakes, I don't know who calculated this, but we shed enough skin flakes over 24 hours to feed, I think they, the number is 1,000 dust mites for a month or some bizarre thing like that. So the bed is hog heaven for dust mites, and uh, uh, managing dust mites in beds is, is pretty easy, uh, uh, straightforward, in that you put a mattress cover over the mattress, plastic mattress cover, uh, and you launder the bedding weekly in hot water. And that that is a major, major step in controlling them in beds. And the other element here is that if you have carpeting, you need to vacuum that with a good vacuum uh, on a regular basis, maybe even even weekly, because uh, that can be another kind of hiding place for them. And so those are the two main things, and my understanding is also that if you want to try and uh, keep the levels down in the first place or keep them down once they do uh, start to uh, proliferate is to really manage the relative humidity in the room? Yeah, the, the humidity is important, and one of the unique, I guess, characteristics about mites is that they don't need liquid water. They're able to absorb water through the absorb water molecules through their skin so that in any relatively high humidity environment, such as a bed, you've got a body in there that's releasing moisture, uh, you know, they they get a quite adequate supply of moisture just from the body or from the uh, moderate levels of humidity in the air. They have some kind of a crystal in their body or skin that uh, that uh, sucks up water. No, with respect to okay, we we talked a little bit about a health home health assessment, and in some cases that could be done, you know, by a professional, or, or in some cases, the homeowner might be able to figure out some of the issues as well. Let's go into a little bit about the educational aspect and what are the key topics with respect to education that a person would, um, you know, try to get through to someone suffering from asthma? Well, people, I think, the, you know, the, one of the starting points is that uh, uh, people need to learn what their triggers are, and, and oftentimes they will keep a diary of when they have an asthma episode, and uh, that should help to narrow things down as to what might be causing the, uh, the attacks. So uh, that is part of the educational component that hopefully one gets uh, as one is treated for asthma to, you know, to have a sense of the things that may serve as asthma triggers and then to uh, do record keeping to identify which things and, and circumstances are likely to set asthma off. And the, the perplexing thing about asthma is that Probably two-thirds of the triggers are things that are allergens, like, you know, mite allergen, dog and cat allergen, roach allergen. But a third of the things have nothing to do with the 
with allergy and the immune system. And these are things like irritants, like a paint smell or perfume uh, or, or fine particles of cigarette smoke, let's say. Um, so there are non-allergenic sources of asthma triggers as well. And so it's been very hard to wrap our minds around this, this disease. So identifying triggers is one component and then avoiding them. And the other important educational or maybe, I don't know, uh, transformational attitudinal thing that one has to understand is that when you go to a doctor and the doctor prescribes a medication for asthma, that is really a trial and error process because there's no way that uh, one can provide the right medication for somebody right out of the box. We, we just can't, uh, we ha the responses to asthma medications are different among different people. So people getting medicine need to understand that they are starting a trial and error process. And if the medicine does not work after a couple of weeks, they need to go back to the doctor and tell the doctor that it's not working. And they won't offend the doctor, but that, that's a normal part of, of uh, drilling down to the best combination of medicines for an individual. And they may think they would offend the doctor, so I think that that's a great point you bring out to really hammer home to them that, you know, if it's not working, you've got to let the doctor know. Um, Cliff, I had a follow-up on, on medication. First, first, I wanted to make a comment, actually. My youngest son, who's yeah, 24 years old now, has had asthma. He actually had pediatric asthma and had it as, as a young adult. And, you know, typically, you know, you visit the doctor, the doctor looks at the chart, they don't even look at the patient. And, you know, I thought that this idea of the diary was just such a, an obvious uh, suggestion. And I don't think that he's ever, because I've taken him to many appointments, I don't think anyone ever looked at the obvious, you know, and, and uh, I just thought well, that, that was a brilliant comment. Well, one of the difficult things about asthma education is that some uh, insurance programs, I believe, I'm not certain about this, but some insurance companies, at least several years ago, did not provide a billing code for asthma education. Hmm. So uh, uh, especially if, you know, there's 20 people backed up in the waiting room, uh, that is not a good setting to get the kind of education you need. And I've also learned that... Uh, in our part of the country, many practice groups for physicians are, you know, four, five, six, eight people, whereas in some states like California, there may be 40 people in a practice group, and those large groups have the wherewithal to hire nurse educators who the doc can look at a patient and then send the patient out to get a training session from the, you know, the, the other health professional. Um, the other aspect of this is that, especially with uh, with low-income communities, um, many of the people, even though they would have access to a primary care physician, don't have one. And the medical care consists of going to the emergency room every time something crops up. And that, again, is not the setting for asthma education. So uh, those are some weak links in the, in the whole system for patients learning to what what they need to do and at the risk of being long-winded one other element here is that 
uh, 10 years ago, there was a research study looking at the uh, treatment regimens uh, offered by uh, family physicians, in other words, non-specialists, and they found that only about 15% of them were fully up to speed with the most recent treatment recommendations from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. So uh, if, you know, you may be getting good treatment from a family physician, but if you're not getting good treatment, the overarching concept is that the goal, the attainable goal, is to get good control and to lead a normal life. You need to get a referral to a specialist. So that's, you know, that's the other important thing, that if you keep going and going back to the physician, you're not getting uh, total relief and control, and you're doing your part of the equation, uh, namely taking the medications, giving feedback, and identifying and managing your triggers, then you need to get a second opinion. Let me uh, follow up because we we've talked a little bit about a great bit about medications, and I want to ask you if you would quickly tell us about the different types of medications and some of the common misconceptions or or errors that patients make with respect to their medications. Okay, well, I I can talk about medications, but uh, I have always been very careful not to ever sound like I'm making. <laughs> medication recommendations, so I haven't even paid attention to specific medicines, but generally there are two types of medications. One type is a, uh, a long-term medication or a, uh, a uh, maintenance medication, and those things are frequently uh, steroids, and those, those things are meant to reduce your the sensitivity of your of your lungs, basically your breathing system, to triggers, and uh, you probably have to take those for several weeks before you you know before they have an effect. And some people stop taking them because they don't think they're doing anything. And the end point for those medications is a reduction in the number or the and or the severity of the attacks. The other type of medication is uh, called a rescue medication or a reliever, a quick relief medicine. And that is something that you take when an attack begins or something that you might take if you feel an attack coming on. And some people can sense that an attack is coming on or somebody whose asthma is triggered by exercise or by cold <coughs> weather or hot weather would take that before going out you know, to, to exercise or to get that climate exposure. So those are the two types of medicines. And with the steroids, it's, it's been learned that some people don't want to take them because of the bad things they've heard about steroids that athletes use to, uh, you know, to pump themselves up. And it's important to understand two things about steroids. One is that... Uh, the ones used for asthma are a different type than the anabolic steroids that athletes abuse. And the other thing is that in most cases, the steroid administration is through an inhaler, so it's, it's shot directly at the organ, and it's usually not given in a whole-body dose. 
So you're taking a smaller dose of a uh, steroid hormone that does not have a lot of strong negative effects. They, they may have some of these side effects that, of the athletic steroids, but they're not that type of steroid. And you're usually sending them to a targeted organ in a small dose. So that, you know, that takes care of some of the, one of the misconceptions that gets in the way for a lot of people of taking the medicines. We appreciate that. And also, uh, I have two things I wanted to uh, touch on. One is, I've got a quick test question or text question from a listener. I don't know if you can answer this specifically or not, but let me maybe kind of reword it a little bit. It says, are there any medications being used to successfully treat asthma triggered by environmental chemicals? Uh, are you familiar with any specific medications or would the steroids also be used for that? No, I, I really don't know that kind of detail. I would, I would presume that, uh, that, for an acute reaction, the uh, the rescue medications are bronchodilators, which cause the muscles on the on the smaller breathing tubes, which have muscles, to relax. So I would I would expect that uh, that the bronchodilators would take care of an acute reaction to an irritant type chemical. Uh, for the for the long term maintenance, I I really don't know if they have medicines that would address that category of, of triggers. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And be, we're going to take a short break to thank our sponsors here at halftime, and we'll bring you right back, Dr. Panessa. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them. WolfSense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Okay, let's go back to this great interview with Dr. Joseph Panessa. Dr. Panessa, do we have you back on the line? Here I am. Okay, great. We were talking a little bit about uh, medications and misconceptions with respect to medications before the break. There's another thing that I, I noticed in the presentation you sent me that I wanted you to relate to our listeners, and that's with respect to the use of the um, the rapid uh, the, the inhal inhalers for a, a quick you know uh, quick fix with respect to someone who's having an attack. What are some of the misconceptions with respect to the use of those? Uh, well, 
One of the things that happens sometimes is that, uh, especially with kids and, and teenagers, they are a bit embarrassed by, to use them. And uh, the, I think the, you know, the mindset or the thinking is that, you know, if people see that I have to use a, uh, some medicine to just manage through, you know, daily activities or phys ed or, or playing on a sports team, uh, I'm going to stand out as there's something wrong with me. I'm unusual, and uh, and that is one of the factors that uh, that plays into the uh, lack of, of medical compliance of uh, of uh, you know taking the meds that they're supposed to take. And I think that your example of the football player with asthma, and there was a uh, an Olympic track star, a woman, uh, Jesse. Joyner Kersey, I think it was. Yeah, Jackie Joyner Kersey, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Jackie. And and I think those examples, which are held up by the American Lung Association as, as great instances of people performing at a at a uh, an extraordinary level, and not being held back by asthma. So you know, I think that, that kind of thing maybe can help to uh, uh, dispel some of the reluctance that, that, you know, would make a kid feel like there's something wrong with them if they, uh, you know, if they're seen having to having to resort to medicine before they engage in everyday activities. Were there some guidelines also with respect to how often they use the inhaler and when the you're getting to the point where you should talk to your doctor because... You're using it too often, and maybe the other medications aren't working with respect to preventing the problem. Well, that that brings up a point which I don't think we talked about in uh, when we chatted yesterday, but I think a, a very good point, and that involves communication and the word control. And there was another research study where they looked at at physician interactions with patients. And they would say something like, so how are you doing with your asthma? Are you managing? Is it under control? And the patient would say, yeah, yeah, I'm getting along okay. And the uh, unknown element in that conversation was was that, in some cases, was that the patient was getting along okay because he or she was using their rescue medication three times a day uh, and, you know, going through canister and canister of this stuff and that's not okay and that's not managing i mean they're they're staving off the 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 bad effects but they're not really controlling so the uh uh, i believe it was nhlbi came up with a definition of control and it said that if you are using your rescue medication more than twice a week that's not in control or if you're using it more than twice a month at night, or if you're using more than two canisters of your rescue medication per year, that is not really keeping it under control, and uh, one needs to look for a better maintenance medication. I think so that's... that is, I, I think, a very instructive and informative uh, piece of information on a, on a communication gap about, you know, how the patient might perceive control and how true medical control is really defined. 
You took the words right out of my mouth. Let's move it over to Cliff here. I don't remember whether a guest said this on a previous show or we dug this up in, in doing research. But the one thing, and I was particularly interested in this because I had mentioned that my son's asthmatic, is there's been a change in these inhalers. And the change has been not the medication. The change has been a propellant. And one of the propellants that was used in these medications was banned because it damaged the ozone layer, uh, uh, yeah. it was a Freon or, or, or whatever. Yeah. And now, if someone's having an asthma attack, they have to use their lungs to draw the medication out of the inhaler because they're not allowed to put propellant in it anymore. So it seems to not no longer do what it was meant to do based on some environmental misconception. I was just wondering if you knew about it or could comment on it. Well, they, they took the, the chlorofluorocarbons out of those medications probably 10 years ago or more, and uh, some of the asthma inhalers still have a propellant on them, I believe, and others uh, have a, involve a device that shoots out a little puff of powder, and the, uh, um, I, I believe that the best procedure is to use a what's called a spacer in other words like a big air chamber between the between the device and the uh, and the patient so it uh, so that those little particles of powder remain in the airstream now so I'm not I'm not certain about all of those details uh, but I'm pretty sure that they still have uh, a propellant in some of the inhalers um, and I, I guess I would say that the the main principle here, or the overarching thought or mechanism, is that uh, there needs to be a certain amount of training to make sure that the patient is using the device properly and getting the uh, getting the medication uh, into the airways and the lungs rather than trapping it in the mouth or something like that. So that's another kind of a clinical training issue for uh, you know for patients that are using those inhaled medications. While we're still on this subject, and I know there's a couple others we'd like to move to, but before we do, I've got a, a text comment more so from a listener. I just want to see if you had any any knowledge on this issue or if um, you wanted to make a comment back. It says that doctors are now prescribing antidepressants to treat neurogenic symptoms because they inhibit reuptake of certain neurotransmitters. Are you familiar with that, or is that something that uh, you'd rather uh, leave it? No, I'm not. Is this in the context of asthma? Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with that, and so I do know that some people can get very depressed uh, when the asthma is not under good control, and very briefly, I... Uh, I went to a seminar that one of the asthma docs that I worked with uh, held, and he had as a guest a man in his early 20s who told a very compelling story where ever since he was probably six or seven years old, he had asthma, which got worse and worse. And as a teenager, he was awakened multiple times every night. He had a whole ch drawer full of medicines. He was not getting relief, and at times even considered suicide. Uh, they moved to Arizona. Things didn't get better. He uh, came back to New Jersey, and he went to see this specialist. And within two weeks, the guy got his first full night of sleep in many years. And the doc said, 
he said, I wish I could say I was a miracle worker, but I just applied, you know, some of the up-to-date NHLBI guidelines and tried a couple of meds and found the one that worked for him. And so it, it sounded like with some just very basic uh, uh, up-to-the-minute care, he fixed this guy's asthma and, uh, and the presumably the depression that went along with the fact that this disease was kind of ruling his life. So I, I, I don't know about the current meds that might be combined to do that, but I would hope that those meds would be secondary to uh, intelligent application of the, of the current guidelines uh, for asthma treatment. It sounds like I'm bad-mouthing doctors, and I don't mean to do that, but uh, uh, those those recommendations change pretty frequently, and, uh, uh, you know, the notion of getting a specialist in second opinion is really really pretty important if you're not getting relief. Well, and, and with respect to that, before we move on, what, what should a patient expect from their physician? So, you know, You've mentioned that they should expect it to be under control. If it's not, they should go back and, and discuss that with with their doctor. Are there any other things that they should expect? Uh, you talked about having a, a little checklist maybe so that when, when they do have a problem that um, they mark it down and it would help them with determining what types of triggers are causing their problem. Is there anything else that they should expect? Well, in, you know, particularly with children, there you know, a lot of physicians use a uh, – uh, an asthma action plan, which jots down that data. And, you know, certainly the patient has to have an active role or the parent in identifying triggers and circumstances. Uh, <clears throat> so I think that's important. Uh, going there with questions, maybe written down questions, maybe with somebody else to help digest the answers that may come very fast. Uh, <clears throat> but I think that, you know, that, that a good... Uh, interchange with the doctor in terms of education or, you know, a nurse practice, some, some other medical professional doing education is really very important. And I, uh, I, I learned, I, I like to look at cartoons, uh, and there was a great cartoon showing a sign in a doctor's waiting room that said, please don't annoy the doctor with questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I think that in our society, you know, we're kind of intimidated by the doctor and maybe reluctant to press the doctor if we don't understand the first answer. And I think we need to to revise our our mindsets a little bit to the to the point that you know the doctor's working for you and his job is to serve you. And you know, you you've got to learn answers to the questions, and uh, and you know that needs to happen. So the asthma action plan sounds like something that uh, people should be looking for. Well, I, I think so. I mean, it may be written, and I don't want to make a general broad recommendation like that. But uh, certainly, in you know, in New Jersey, it's on paper at least it is required for uh, the school students to, in order for them to be able to take or receive their meds during the school day. Um, uh, I think most places in the country allow students to have and and receive their meds either to self-medicate or to uh, uh, get it from the nurse, but they need to have some documentation from the doctor. And an asthma action plan, which lists, you know, the meds, the triggers, the uh, peak flow values on the on the peak flow meter, 
are a very good way of having that important information in black and white. Would it be fair to say you feel that asthma is a, a disease that should be and can be managed so that anyone with asthma should be able to lead a normal life? Yes, and that basically that is kind of the mantra of the National Heart, uh, Blood, and Lung Association and, and CDC. That, uh, yeah, exactly what you said. Well, let's move on to uh, indoor environmental quality issues, a little broader uh, subject. When we talked uh, earlier in the week, you know, I got this, uh, you gave me a great overview of some historical perspective, and you've been involved with this issue for a lot longer than I have and, and for a lot longer than most, if not all, of our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the, the earliest, you know, we talked earlier about actually some indoor environmental quality issues and some indoor environmental quality awareness that occurred actually before the turn of the 19th century into the or the 18th into the 19th century. Can you relay that back to our readers or our listeners? Well, I, I think that Ben Franklin said something about the importance of getting fresh air into a building, and he, he had insights on almost everything. Uh, there's another astonishing piece of information that I didn't mention to you, but in 1869, Harriet Beecher Stowe, of all people, and her sister wrote a book called The American Woman's Home. You should write that down. And in there, there is a chapter, a couple of chapters, on ventilating buildings. And they had some remarkable insights in 1869. And you can go to Google Books, type in The American Woman's Home, and pull up a scanned copy of this thing. Uh, around the turn of the century, 1890s and so forth, uh, some public health reformers in New York City started to crack down on windowless tenements. And um, that was one of the first more or less official rec uh, recognitions of the importance of indoor air quality. Uh, we fast forward to the 1940s when there were inversions where a mass of polluted air was trapped over a city notably Pittsburgh and London, where a number of people died, and the indoor environment was given as a refuge. Stay indoors, because the pollution is going to be a little bit less in there. Uh, Clean Air Act of the 1960s got rid of a lot of that nasty pollution. And interestingly, if you try and look back in the scientific literature, there is not much interest in... Uh, indoor environmental quality until the until the 1970s, picking up in the 80s with um, uh, the landmark team study sponsored by EPA, which looked at indoor pollution in urban and rural areas, found that both groups of homes had elevated levels of volatile organic compounds, VOCs, uh, and they had, there was the same cluster of them in both rural and urban homes um, in very low concentrations compared to uh, what's allowed in occupational settings. Um, and, uh, and then things have really picked up since then. And as I mentioned to you, I have been going to building moisture conferences since I started at Rutgers in 81. And in 92, I was at a, at a conference at the National Institute building sciences and realized suddenly that many of the presentations on mold were talking about mold and health 
And that was kind of the first time I had seen an emphasis on that as opposed to uh, damage to the structure and the contents of buildings from mold. And I, I think that things have really, really taken off since then, and there's a great deal of concern, largely because, or maybe attached to the fact, that we want to build tighter houses to save energy. And the current position of the building science community that we should build now as tight as possible a house and provide ventilation by design and mechanical means rather than by accident, as we've done in the past. So the notion, then, is to optimize ventilation to provide a, uh, a healthy and comfortable building. You know, I, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, National Institute of Building Sciences. I, I just happened to be doing some, some research this week and came across some really good information on their website with respect to indoor environmental quality issues. And, and in fact, there were links to, uh, I guess it would be specifications and, and sections within specifications that dealt with indoor environmental quality issues that, you know, NIBS has published over the years. So I thought that's a, that's a great point you made there, and, and it's an area that I don't think a lot of people think about looking to for information on indoor environmental quality. Cliff, I know you had another question. There. Well, it's kind of a two-part question. I'd like to know, Doctor, where environmental tobacco smoke rates on your scale of indoor uh, environmental quality issues and also radon? Well, in terms of uh, radon, I, I, I would classify that as probably the top indoor environmental pollutant, uh, simply because of the numbers of deaths that are attributed to it and the fairly strong evidence we have about that in terms of its, of its role in lung cancer. Environmental tobacco smoke uh, it's kind of a funny category in the sense that it is, uh, it's kind of a voluntary pollutant from the person generating the smoke. Uh, it has been banned in most public places, so it's no longer a, a big risk in most states, but spouses of smokers certainly have a big issue, and uh, uh, I've seen data attributing anywhere from 5,000 to as many as 30,000 excess lung cancer deaths attributed to secondary exposures. Uh, the higher numbers may reflect data that's 10 years old when there was probably more ETS exposure in, uh, in this country. Uh, but the, you know, the, the perspective that just blows me away is that overall tobacco deaths in this country amount to more than 400,000 deaths per year, a staggering, staggering number compared to 35,000 people killed in car crashes or 1,000 people a year worldwide killed in commercial aviation. So the, the, and the public health impact of tobacco is just out of the ballpark. And with respect to radon? So well, with, with respect one. to oh, radon, the, the numbers, the best estimates to deaths are between 15 and 22,000 excess uh, lung cancers per year, with most of those being smokers, where the the combined exposure to smoke, tobacco smoke, and radon is a multiplier. And the deal with radon is that this this epidemiology is pretty well known in terms of what it does and how many people it hurts. 
the prevalence of it around the country is pretty well known on a county-by-county and even municipality basis. It's easy to measure with a 10 or 20 or $30 test kit, and the cost of fixing it is uses a very well-known methodology, pride and true method, that costs maybe $1,500 a year. So it is, for one of the biggest risks, you can fix it with a fairly modest uh, investment. The, I think one of the things that puts it out of the public mind, or two of the things, are one, it's a pollutant that God put there, and two, uh, you, you don't see it or smell it, and it takes probably 25 to 30 years uh, of exposure and latency for lung cancer to develop, whether it's radon or tobacco smoke. And that, that, so that amount for control, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, in other words, that long time period makes it seem a lot less urgent than a lot of other pollutants. And the fact that we don't have some big industrial complex to get mad at also makes it a bit less uh, annoying to people than, uh, than it should be. I see. And that's about $1,500. That's just the one-time cost, correct? Yeah, and, and you probably don't need to to worry about that anymore unless you do something radical to the building, put on an addition, uh, make a major change in the heating system, or do substantial weatherization. So any big change to the building, you should probably retest. All right. We're going to go to our roundup. It looks like we may go over a couple minutes. Can you stick around with us for an extra three to five minutes? Sure. Great. Thank you. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Right. Let's get Dr. Dietrich Wow here on the line. We've got Dr. Panessa back on. Let's get Dr. Wow on there. If you could unmute uh, Dieter, thank you. Hello, Dr. Wow. I'm sure you've got a comment. Or t- oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I do. <laughs> okay, we had to have a proper introduction for you, Dieter. Yeah, I still love Beethoven. It's an old tune, but it's going to be around for a long, long time. Uh, anyway, of course, I have a bunch of, of, of uh, uh, questions and remarks. And unfortunately, uh, Dr. Panessa answered one already. Nobody knows why we have asthma. This is just unbelievable to me. Since they, I mean, it's not a very rare disease that there are three guys, you know, or something like that with elephant's disease or so. And um, I have my own, I have my own theories. And uh, I, I still think that we are in many instances overwhelming the human body, uh, which is several thousand years old and has, uh, has gone through a lot of things. And I think with some of the drugs that we give people called injections and immunizations, I think we are screwing up something in the body. When I grew up, the word, I have never, I never heard, and I grew up in Europe, 
and in India, and in England, and in France, and the longest time in Pittsburgh. When I was a kid, I, I, I never used, I never heard the word asthma. Now, those, this, my generation is probably the last generation when we were kids. We grew up without plastics and all of that. It so happens that I never, due to things that had something to do with the Second World War, I never got vaccinated, and I have wonderful homemade antibodies against just about everything. I never had a cold in my life. That doesn't matter. But that bothers me. I say, what is it that it, uh, uh, it triggers an asthma attack? Uh, the other thing, and we all know, uh, or pe- certainly people who have asthma know, clean, cold air can trigger an asthma attack. So it makes a lot of sense to me that even a relatively inert propellant like a fluorocarbon, the freons, uh, can trigger an asthma attack. There is no, I mean, yeah, you're trying to get something into the uh, uh, into your lung where it is beautifully absorbed, by the way. It's, it's, it's wonderful absorption uh, there. And um, so I, I, I do believe that the ones uh, where you inhale the powder only and you, um, uh, uh, your lungs put a negative pressure onto the, uh, the gadget and then you inhale the dust. I think that is a much better way of doing that. Um, interestingly, I'm going back also 60 or 70, uh, 60 years. My grandmother was a strong believer of fresh air in the bedroom. We had a thick decker, uh, uh, decker that, that's German, a, a thick blanket. And we didn't, well, the heat was lousy. We certainly didn't have air conditioning. I'm pretty sure the house was very badly insulated and was leaking like a sieve. But uh, that kind of got me rolling in my, uh, in my young life. And I like the other one. Is that you're, whenever you go to your doctor, there's that sign in the waiting room that please be sure not to ask the doctor a question and confuse him. <laughs> I, like, I liked even better, uh, I had my kitty cat vaccinated against rabies. Uh, there was a sign in there, please keep your children on a leash that they don't, <laughs> that they don't bother my patients. <laughs> I, love, I, I love that. But I think, I, I don't know, I, I have a... I have an uncomfortable feeling when I hear asthma and because we don't know anything about it. And by the way, just another quick comment uh, with that radon, the damn smokers, and I was one of them, I'm an ex-smoker and I, I, I regret that I ever did it. I, sh- I, I know I injured my lung. Um, uh, they are screwing up the, uh, the epidemiology of radon. <laughs> <laughs> you can't separate the two. So maybe, probably not in my lifetime, we're going to get rid of uh, a cigarette smoke altogether, and uh, that is for the better of mankind. There's no doubt in my mind. Well, thank uh, you. I, I have many more, but heck with it. I have a number of thoughts, and maybe going in reverse, my, my evil mind sometimes comes up with some very good ideas, and one good idea is that if every hospital in the country or if hospitals in New York and Chicago rolled bodies out into the parking lot attributed to cigarette use, tobacco use, uh, for a week, I think that we would not be able to buy cigarettes in this country anymore in two weeks. 
with regard to why we get asthma, the Institute of Medicine uh, in, uh, I think, 2002, about eight years ago, did a study where they got a blue ribbon panel who examined all of the uh, asthma, uh, major asthma papers over the previous 10 years, <clears throat> ranked them in terms of their uh, uh, design strength, and tried to identify uh, possible causes of asthma. And they, uh, you know, they, they ranked things as probable or likely, or, or I, I forget the rankings, but they gave good rankings to known triggers. They, uh, the most likely causes of asthma were, uh, as I recall, uh, oh, dust mite allergen and uh, respiratory syncytial virus. I, I forget, but but the evidence for causality was was fairly weak. The uh, the major element here, the major one of the major things that I did not mention at all was the so-called hygiene hypothesis, which says that our immune systems require a certain amount of exposure to uh, Wonderful. harmful things in order for us to develop properly uh, the immune system. And they did things like look at um, uh, the incidence of asthma in, in children on farms, and if it if an infant was taken out to the barn early in life, uh, that kid was less likely to develop asthma as an adult. I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, that may that may you know that I, may be your. I grew up in a place where there was no running water, no electricity, and no gas. So that, and I I think that I'm not sure about this, but I think that the world epidemiology shows that the asthma is worse in so-called civilized or advanced first world. Yeah, well, that's, that's one, one price we have to pay. <laughs> among, uh, especially among low-income populations in, in cities. Uh, they would also look at asthma incidents where kids had older siblings going to daycare and coming home with the sniffles and all kinds of little minor ailments, and those second children had less asthma. Yeah, I grew uh, up in a, in, in a farmland, and I walked... And I still do that once in a while. People think I'm absolutely crazy. I walk barefoot in the snow. Oh my Doesn't goodness. bother me at all. It, it helps my circulation at the tender age of 72. <laughs> uh, and maybe to close with another cartoon, I, I saw a little, <laughs> a little sign that said, uh, we're getting rid of our children. The cat is allergic. Yeah. <laughs> Gentlemen, we appreciate both of you being here as always. It's great to have Dr. Wild, Dr. Panessa. We, we've had a great time here, and um, we're running over. But before we go, I always like to, you know, Cliff and I like to ask, is there anything you'd like to add before we go? Well, I, I think that, you know, I'm glad you mentioned radon. And in many states or many parts of the country, that's off the radar. And yet that is really one of the most important things to attend to and it's like it's like buying a fire alarm getting a radon test you know you don't expect to have a problem but if you do have a problem you really want to get warned for it you want to get warning about it and you know for 20 or 30 bucks you can buy a long-term a, a 30 to 90 day uh, radon detector which gives you a very good picture of what's going on in your own house and this is especially important in, in what the EPA calls the 
tier one communities, the high-risk communities around the country, which they've, uh, uh, EPA has a map of county by county, and usually the state health department or the state radon office or environmental office will have a, a site devoted to radon. So that's a really big issue, and if you've got a problem, you want to find out about it and, and fix it. Well, thank you. I just want to thank Dr. Joseph Panessa for joining us here this week on IAQ Radio. Great interview. We've had some uh, nice comments from listeners already. We do appreciate you being here. Well, I really enjoyed the opportunity. Thanks again. Great talk to you. Okay. Before we go, I also want to make sure I thank my co-host, the Z-Man. It was fun, Joe. It was a very informative show today. Always a pleasure. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and at the controls, Stone Cold, Austin Novak. Uh, but most importantly, of course, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.